the mantra of our culture right now is don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Time is short. Make the most of your life while you have it. And the irony is, if we live this way, if we accept this mantra into our lives, we will, in fact, waste our lives. In this series, we're considering the different ways that we can waste our lives, and we're considering how, from the world's perspective, the call of following Jesus looks like a wasted life, but in fact, it is the path to life abundant. So although Jesus never said, don't waste your life, we can reappropriate these words to express his call. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life chasing after the wrong things. Don't waste your life chasing after anything or anyone other than me. Don't waste your life chasing after wealth and luxury to the detriment of your soul. Don't waste your life. So today we're going to look at how easy it is for us to waste our lives in covetousness and the pursuit of abundance. And we're going to look at how instead we should waste our lives becoming rich toward God. So if you have a Bible, open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in chapter 12. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of our Bibles. It's yours. Uh, everything will be on the screen behind me. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So we have to start with this someone in the crowd. And this someone is likely the younger brother, because if he was the older brother, all the inheritance would be his. He would be the one responsible in that time and place to divvy up the inheritance. So the fact that he's coming forward to Jesus with this request, we can conclude that he is not the eldest brother. And for whatever reason, the eldest brother is not dividing up the inheritance to this man's satisfaction. There is some sort of disagreement happening within the family. And unfortunately, we know what this is like. We have seen in our own congregation, in our own lives, how inheritance issues can divide up family. How fights can ensue over treasures that people want for themselves. Now, at first glance, it looks like this man is the victim. He just wants his due. He just wants his piece of the family pie. Now, maybe the older brother is withholding his share. Or maybe this younger brother just wants more, feels entitled to more. We're not told. But what we do know is that this man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want you to fix this for me. I want you to make this right for me. I want you to interpret the Torah for us, Rabbi. But did you notice? This man does not come forward with a question. He doesn't come forward with a question. He comes to Jesus and he doesn't ask, how can I reconcile with my brother? What wisdom do you have for this conflict? How might we address this in a better way? What does the Torah actually teach about inheritance issues? And how might we be reconciled, Lord? Oh, he comes forward with a command. He comes forward with a directive. He tells Jesus what to do. And this gives us a picture into the man's psyche. This gives us a picture into the sort of man that is standing before Christ. At the beginning of this chapter, at the beginning of Luke 12, we're told a large crowd, thousands of people had gathered around Jesus. And they're trampling one another. So it's a volatile and complex scene and this man managed to fight his way through this massive crowd of people who are trampling upon one another. And when he gets to Jesus, he doesn't have a question. He has a command. He has a directive. He tells Jesus what to do. 
Teacher, tell my brother to give me my inheritance. You see, this man, he's not coming to Jesus for counsel. He's not coming to Jesus saying, teacher, hear this case. Hear both sides and decide for yourself what is the right way to follow and honor God. He wants Jesus to blindly side with him. So essentially, he has come to Jesus to use Jesus, to leverage Jesus for his own wants and desires, his own gain. And so perhaps we should take a brief moment to consider the ways we might do that. How often do we come to Jesus because we already have an agenda? And we want to use him in some way, shape, or form to get what we want. And so it's not really about him, it's about us. How often are we guilty of that? This man comes to Jesus, but Jesus won't be pulled into the family drama. At least not on this man's terms. Instead, Jesus responds in verse 14 and 15. Man, who made me judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, the crowd and this man, Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I love this. Jesus, he pushes past the question and he gets to the heart of the matter because there's something more happening within this man. This isn't just about inheritance. There's something insidious at work in his soul, which is why Jesus tells the crowd and tells the man to take care which in the Greek is literally, watch out. And then he doubles it up. Be on your guard. Watch out. Be on your guard. What's at work in your soul is very dangerous. It will shipwreck your life. It'll disorder the way you see yourself, the way you treat others, and your relationship with God. Watch out. And so Jesus exposes this for the whole crowd to see. Because he's in great danger. This man is in great danger. Well, what's the danger? Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. The man is covetous. Now, what is coveting? It's not a word we commonly use. It's not like Ansley or Maggie run up to me like, Mom, Maggie's coveting. Like, that has not happened yet. And they're pastor's kids. <laughs> the author, Melissa Kruger, defines coveting as the desire to possess that which belongs to another the desire to possess that which belongs to another. If you want run into a friend, you see they have a nice pair of new shoes. Mine aren't new, but imagine they're new. And they're John Fluvogs. And you'd be like, wow, are those John Fluvogs? Those are nice shoes. That's not necessarily coveting. It's a compliment. Now, if you go out and you buy the exact same pair of shoes, again, not necessarily coveting. It's copying. It might annoy your friend, but as far as I know, there's no biblical command against that. But if you say, hey, nice shoes, and then you break into their house, and you take their shoes, and you wear them for yourselves, well, that's coveting and breaking and entering and theft, and there's an issue there. You see, coveting, it's really easy to identify when it's expressed as an action, but it's subtle when it's just at work in our hearts. It's the desire to possess that which belongs to another, not just the action, the desire. And we usually covet in the areas where we compare ourselves to others the most. I'm guilty of this. You know, I look at other pastors, larger congregations, more books published, seemingly more influence. And I don't just think to myself, oh, I would like to have that. I actually think, no, I deserve that. 
And that's just the tip of the iceberg. This passage has been showing me just how much I covet in my life. Apparently, pastors aren't exempt from this. Neither are pastors' wives. Julia and I were driving home from the aquarium yesterday, and the sermon was on my mind. And, and so I asked her, what do you covet? And now, if I'm honest, it's because I couldn't think of my wife coveting. I couldn't think of a single example. And so I said, what do you covet? And without skip missing a beat, Julia rattled this off. People who have free time, people who can go dancing, people who have a yard, people who go to the mountains more than I do, people who have a family who live in the city. And then she paused and she said, and people who married a husband who actually likes camping. <laughs> Now, you might not act on it, but you still covet. And when, even if you don't act on it, coveting still messes us up. Someone has something you want. The title, the job, the apartment, the spouse, the newest gadget, the car, a more Instagram-worthy life the right lifestyle, more vacations, greater beauty, better friends, more impressive resume, more accomplishments, the picturesque Western lifestyle. You want it, you covet it, but you don't act on it. And yet because you covet, you might suddenly find that what you do have no longer feels good enough. You see, it's one thing to desire something for yourself. That's not necessarily wrong. But it's another thing if that desire breeds all sorts of discontentment and anger and frustration and most of all, an inability to appreciate all that you do have. Because suddenly when you're coveting, it doesn't appear like it's enough. It doesn't appear like it's good enough. So if this is happening, if this sort of discontent is brewing in your soul, it's likely you're coveting. Since Jesus exposes this man's heart, since Jesus shows that this man is in fact coveting, it's fairly safe to assume that he doesn't just want his inheritance, he wants more of the inheritance than he already has. He's dissatisfied with his portion and he sees his brothers flourishing and he thinks, I want that and I want that for myself. But why is it so dangerous? A little discontentment never really hurt anyone. Well, that's why Jesus tells a parable. A parable to draw out how easy it is to waste our lives when coveting takes root in us. And the parable goes like this. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Right away, Jesus has everybody's attention. The crowd and the man, everyone's transfixed and listening because he has just painted to uh, some degree what everybody desires. The good life. The good life. Enough wealth and provision so that you have security and comfort for all of your days, the elusive enough so that you can actually kick back and enjoy life. And if, mo if we're honest, most of us are probably thinking, this man's arrived. This is the Western vision of retirement. We save up as much as we can so we can retire as young as we can so we can enjoy life for as long as we can. And our goal in retiring is acquiring enough wealth and security so that we can indulge in ourselves for the rest of our days. 
And so Jesus has everybody's attention with this parable. He has the crowd's attention and he has our attention because he's just described something that every one of us in some way, shape, or form hope to attain in our lives. Good. Because now he wants to dismantle this false vision of the good life. He wants to draw out the danger implicit in this vision and the danger of coveting it. The parable goes, there's this rich man, a rich man that all of us in some sense would like to be like. And this man has a great season on his farm, but now he has a, a, a dilemma. He has an abundance. He has excess. He doesn't know what to do with it. What does he do with all this excess crop? He said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So what's the problem here? What's the danger in this picture? The first problem is that the man is terribly self-absorbed. Did you notice he's speaking to himself? It's a soliloquy. I had to practice that, and it came out wrong. He's speaking to himself. A child in school was once asked what part of speech me and mine are. And the child answered, aggressive pronouns. I like that. This man is aggressively self-centered. The first person pronoun in one sentence appears 11 times. The good life has arrived, but it's entirely about him and for him. He's self-absorbed. Which leads to the second problem. He doesn't see beyond himself. The ancient Middle Eastern world was much more communal than our current Western world. And so this individualistic mindset that we see on display here might not strike us as odd, but it would have been shocking and even bizarre to the original hearers of this parable. Not once does this man consult anyone, not a friend or a brother or a relative or a neighbor. He acts entirely on his own. It doesn't even cross his mind to give any of the excess away to help the community around him flourish and not just himself. Or as St. Augustine put it, he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. Do you see? His eyes are only set on his own gain and how it benefits him. Look at his speech again. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. What he gained is for his own sake, his own desire, his own benefit, because he is the captain of his own soul, and he is so self-absorbed that he can't see just how distanced he is from healthy relationships with others and the community around him, and he sees all of his blessings, all of his abundance for his own sake and not for the sake of others. And the third problem is his underlying view of, the, of life in the world. Look again at what he says to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. The man doesn't see beyond himself and he doesn't see beyond the world. This life is it. Time is limited and he's been fortunate enough to have an abundance so now he can relax. He can enjoy life. He can eat, drink, and be merry until the day he dies. What's wrong with that? Nothing. There is nothing wrong with that vision of life if there is not an infinitely valuable God and a resurrection awaiting all of us. If there's no God, if there's no resurrection, 
I would be living the way this man's living. But what we're supposed to see in this parable is how deeply damaging this worldview really is. Because look at how Jesus concludes the parable. Verse 20. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. and The things you've prepared, whose will they be? This man who appears to have lived the good life actually wasted his life. He's a fool. What makes him a fool? Do you remember what he said to himself? My soul. My soul. But in verse 20, God says, your soul is required of you. In other words, his soul was only ever on loan from God. This man is a fool because he spent his entire life on himself to be spent as he wishes. He lives with no view beyond the world, no sense of God, but as a result, he's poor toward God. He's a fool in God's sight. And when God asks the man, the things you've prepared, whose will they be? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, not yours. None of it's yours. Not your stuff, not your abundance, not even your life. He gained the world, but he forfeited his soul. He wasted his life and everything he had and even his own life will end up on the ash heap of eternity. And so after telling this zinger of a parable, Jesus drives the point home in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In telling this parable, Jesus paints a vision that he knows most of us will covet. He shows us something we desire to have for ourselves, an abundance of wealth so that we can enjoy life to the full. This is what the man who came forward with the inheritance issue was after. And most of us would be content just to have enough so that we could retire young and enjoy life on our terms. And we would just add the caveat, like we won't be self-absorbed, we'll be generous, we'll share with others still, but we would still like to have this version of the good life where we can live more and more for our own wants and pleasures. But the parable shows us that this whole vision of life, this whole vision of the world is deeply flawed. You're coveting something that will actually destroy you. And really, it's because coveting will destroy you. And that's why Jesus said, take care, watch out, be on your guard against all, any form of covetousness. An abundance of wealth doesn't fix an impoverished soul. It never has and it never will. And our souls are truly impoverished if we covet. Because when we covet, we're really chasing after things instead of God, which is why St. Paul calls coveting idolatry. It's false worship. It's the belief that something or someone will be more fulfilling and satisfy than the joy of knowing God. It's the belief that what you have or what you will have, who you are or who you will be, who you know or who you might know in the future, that these things will make a fulfilling life and that you desire these things more than you desire the maker of the universe. We're poor toward God when we desire anything or anyone more than we desire him. And if we're self-absorbed, 
if we can't see beyond ourselves, if we only live for indulging in this world, or if we don't give thanks for the many blessings we receive as a gift to be stewarded for the sake of others, if we are any or one of these things or many other things, we're poor toward God. We're poor toward God. So how do we take a step in the direction of becoming rich toward God? Because that's what this parable seems to be about. Jesus says, you missed out being rich toward God. Well, what is that? That's an unusual phrase. What is richness toward God? Well, Jesus gives us a contrast. It is the opposite of laying up earthly treasure for yourself. Being rich toward God is also the opposite as, as treating the self as though it were made for things and not for God. It is the opposite of acting as if life consists in the abundance of possessions and not in the abundance of knowing God. It means counting God as greater riches than anything on earth. That's what it means to be rich toward God. As Charles Spurgeon once said, one way you know that Jesus Christ is precious to you is that nothing else is. He's not saying nothing matters or that things can't be important to you. Only that Jesus matters above everything else. And this is what the prosperous farmer failed to do. And as a result, he was a fool and his soul was lost. And this is what the man from the crowd is failing to do as well. Because he's just like the man in the parable. He's self-absorbed. He can't see beyond himself. He has a limited view of the world. And if we're honest... This is where many of us fail too. We're poor toward God rather than rich toward God. So how do we get there? How do we become rich toward God? How do we cultivate this desire for God as our true riches when the desire might not even be there? Or when we don't even see God as desirable or even long for God many days? How we can go week after week without even a thought of God? How do we cultivate richness to God when our propensity is to come forward to God like this man from the crowd, only to use God when he is helpful for a situation we're in, but not ever to just come and enjoy God for who he is. How do you cultivate that desire? How do you become rich toward God? By bringing your poverty to Jesus. We come to Jesus with our poverty. We acknowledge that a lack of desire for God is to some degree because we're coveting. Because we want something or someone more than we actually want God. Imagine if this man from the crowd could have better vision. If he could see what he was actually doing. He's standing before Jesus, the son of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the author of his soul. And he comes before Jesus and says, I want you to give me more abundance and wealth. And while you're at it, divide up my family. He appears oblivious to the greater matters of his soul. Imagine if it went differently. Imagine if he came to Jesus and said, Jesus, my heart is wrecked with covetousness. I'm self-absorbed. I want more than what I have. I think my life will be meaningful and purposeful when I have more abundance, more pleasure, more wealth. And I want what my brother has. And I want it so badly to be my own that it's destroying our relationships. And I'm selfish. And I can't see beyond myself. And I can't see beyond this world. Help me, Lord. 
Imagine if that's how he came forward to Jesus. If he acknowledged his poverty toward God, he would be taking a step, a stride toward not wasting his life. If only he could have seen who was standing before him. Jesus, the rich fool from heaven. Wait, can we call him that? Jesus, the rich fool from heaven. Absolutely. And I'm indebted to the pastor and writer David Mecklemore for this insight. Not Mecklemore the musician, Mecklemore, Pastor Mecklemore. Jesus became a different kind of rich fool, the rich fool from heaven. Jesus didn't build any storehouses on earth to keep his wealth. He had no earthly wealth. He wasn't self-absorbed, even though there is none greater than him. He didn't look out at what he had built in his short lifetime and think, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Instead, Jesus left the heavenly riches that his father had lavished on him for all eternity to give his life for fools of all sorts who could never find him on their own. Whereas Pastor Mecklemore puts it, he left the crown for a cross, the throne for the grave, everlasting life for temporary death, praise for shame, justification for condemnation, righteousness for wickedness. Jesus left it all to give it all to us. He left it all to give it all to us. And because of this, this is why St. Paul writes in Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You become rich toward God by encountering Jesus who became poor for you. That's the first step. And when you come to him with the poverty of your soul, when you come to him in prayer, when you come to him and you say, all is not well in my soul, there is disorder in here and I am poor toward God, he will give you true riches because he will give you himself. And on a very practical level, this does three things. First, being rich towards God disarms coveting. It's not that all our desires suddenly cease or that all of our desires are suddenly magically rightly ordered. It's, you're going to desire lots of things in your life and sometimes it's not coveting. Sometimes those desires are good. But even when desires take hold and they breed this sort of discontent, when you're rich toward God, you can almost laugh at your covetousness because God will show you it for what it is. And he'll redirect you toward the path of abundant life. He will remind you, as the Apostle Paul tells us, we have nothing and yet we possess everything. And so, yeah, we might see covetousness flutter up in our lives from time to time, but we will see it for what it is. And we'll repent and we'll turn toward the one who is a better prize. Second, when you're rich toward God, it changes what you do with your material riches. Whatever wealth or abundance you do have, you can't just build bigger storehouses. God isn't giving you resources, time. He's not giving you energy. He's not giving you money so that you can just be self-indulgent. It's not wrong to enjoy what he's given you for yourself. But if that's the only end, it becomes a wrong. When God blesses you with abundance, it's always for the sake of those around you. 
God entrusts things to you because he wants to do incredible things through you. And so when you come to God, you, have to, you begin to understand that God gave and he gives and he gives and he gives. And as we become like Christ, we do too. We give and we give and we give. And we recognize that everything we have is a blessing from God. It's all his and he has the right to ask us to do whatever we want. he wants with it. You see, finally, when you become rich toward God, and this is the harder part, the Western dream of retirement dies. It's crucified. Don't get me wrong. One day you will retire from your career. That's not wrong. But there will never be in a moment in your life where you just get to coast for the rest of your life. Because when you're rich toward God, your greatest joy is God. Your greatest delight is serving God and walking in his ways. And that doesn't stop until there's no more breath in your lungs. So whether you're five or 85, God has something he wants to do with you and through you in this world. And it might be small, it might be big, but you never get to coast. Again, don't get me wrong. If you're about to retire, I'm not saying you can never take a vacation. You can never enjoy nice things. But that can't be the primary aim of your retirement. It can't. Because it's self-indulgent. It's living for yourself. If you really encounter Christ, you encounter the one who gave his life away, poured his life out for many. And that's what we'll do with our own. When we're rich toward God, it might make us look like fools on earth but we won't be fools before God. You might look like a fool on earth, but you won't be a fool before God. Because the riches of God will last for eternity and everything else will fade away. It will. So don't waste your life. Don't waste your life coveting what others have. Don't waste your life in the pursuit of abundance, thinking that that will somehow order your soul. If you're going to waste your life on anything, waste it on becoming rich toward God. Bring your poverty to Jesus and let him give you true riches. And if the desire isn't there, say, Lord, have mercy on me. Grant me the desire to see you this way, that I could see you as my true treasure, my true joy, my true riches. And guess what? If you pray that prayer, Jesus is always happy to answer it. 